Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Not Safe for Wonks. We're so glad to be with you as always. I'm Kennedy Cooper. I am Brandon Buchanan. And joining us today, we have John Munitz. John is the host of the YouTube channel Hill of Roses, a political activist in general. And John, we're so glad to have you. Say hi. Thank you so much for having me on, Kennedy. And thank you so much, Brandon, for also having me on as well. It's a lot easier when you're not the host. All you have to do is like just show up and give your takes. If you're the host, you have to like run things technically and edit and produce, and it's a, it's a pain in the ass. I love it. I will be doing all that stuff myself too, as I just recorded an episode earlier today. Uh, was it solo or was it with someone? I, I was interviewing someone. Uh, my guest was Nicholas Party. We talked about universal basic income, ranked choice voting, and drug decriminalization. Uh, people don't know this, but we almost, uh, you and I almost had a crossover in um the fall when i was a williamson person and uh you were looking for to hold like a debate between supporters and yeah i remember I contacted that. you and i just think it fell through I'm, I'm sure that you got someone for it um and it was it, it was wonderful and we followed you ever since so it's good that we're finally hanging out yes i appreciate that we could finally talk together unfortunately at the time it was nothing due to marianne's fault but because we could not get a third participant we were we got the people we needed for marianne we got someone who we wanted to represent pete Buttigieg. but a consistent trend we found when we were trying to set up candidate supporter debates is that no one wanted to defend elizabeth warren and so that's why we had to constantly shift things around. It's so um, funny. We can share an experience here because our podcast has also tried to get uh, a Warren supporter on the show. And we all know multiple Warren supporters and maybe there's a memo out or something, but they consistently like don't do independent media. Uh, and the Buttigieg supporters are kind of like this as well as they're also hard to get. Um, we actually are getting a Warren supporter, but it might be after Super Tuesday and who knows where she'll be after that. So <laughs> right. I don't know. Uh, you might not actually get a Warren supporter then. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Independent. Yeah, I don't know. That would be pretty I, ironic. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, we had um, a, a uh, Yang Gang Internet organizer on who goes by Easy, um, okay. and And he, we had him on like, 40 episodes ago or something and even though like that we had a few disagreements during the episode as a whole um especially between him and leia uh he, like overall it was like a really positive ep and like we had a good time with him and he's remained like a friend and fan of the show and he actually encouraged this warren uh person who like does organizing for warren on the internet in the same way that he did for yang go on their show i had a really good time and 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 this Warren person that I was trying to get still wouldn't come on. <laughs> uh, Yang Gang is fearless, and we want to be friendly, so we want to build all the inroads we can. So I, it doesn't surprise me that you had a good experience despite the disagreements with that Yang supporter. Yeah, I mean, it was just like a few specific policies that we got into. We were kind of like, well, you know, Leia especially was like, I think this, and he was like, I think that. And they kind of got into it a little bit, but it was just a healthy debate. It wasn't even like it never got nasty. Which it should be when it gets to policy. At the end of the day, if we have similar goals, but our solutions differ, that doesn't make either of us a bad person. We just have differences of opinion. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and uh, yeah, I just wanted to say also, you know, I had a really good time going on your show to talk about the debate a while back or, you know, the debate oh, yeah. debates ago. Um <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> that was uh, definitely a more interesting uh, debate and more positive for sure compared to the last one we went through. Yeah, uh, the vibes were very different back then. Um, yes. And obviously that was back when Andrew Yang was still very much in the race. Yeah, and, the, uh, the tunes have become a little bit more desperate from the field. <laughs> Yeah, everything's everything's gotten a little bit uh, just shaken up since then. I mean, I don't think any of us expected necessarily things to be quite in this position now. Exactly. It's it's been wild. Before Iowa, we did make predictions, and this was one of my predictions for the best case scenario. I mean, I did make the prediction about like the weird results in Iowa shortly beforehand. You did, but, but you did, but way beforehand, way be back when. Jonathan and I recorded this for his YouTube channel. I was like, I was in a completely different headspace about where things were going. <laughs> Honestly, I believe Iowa did that to us all. We're all just like cynical. We don't trust it. And it's like everything shook out at that point. I have to ask because I wondered about this. Do you think Iowa affected Yang's decision to drop out? Like he. Oh, yeah. Totally. Kind of had like a revelation, maybe. Yeah. I, here's the thing. Um, one, he blew his money load there. Uh, so he did his 17-day bus tour there. He spent the majority of his advertising money there. And so when he was starting to not make all of his fundraising goals after Iowa as well, that that was some writing on the wall. I will say, even on Twitter myself, I felt very cynical before the New Hampshire primary, and I was even telling people I would not be surprised if he dropped out after New Hampshire. I didn't know it was going to be before even the voting was done, but I had some writing on the wall feeling. That was a little chaotic. Just like, I was not expecting that for him to just drop out like in the middle of results coming in. Yeah. Yeah, it was more the timing than the actual like, okay, it's time to be realistic with ourselves. Right. I would just expect it to come a day or two later usually. But, you know, Andrew Yang is a guy who does the unexpected. And honestly, it's how he got his media moments from it, too. Like if he did it a couple days after, maybe they ignore him. But it kind of like it shocked people. And so I think that was actually good timing on his part to do it. Yeah, I can see that. Um, I also kind of had the sense that maybe he just kind of saw what was happening to Bernie and thought, if they're doing this to him, they're definitely going to screw me. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I could kind of see that. He had already had his brushes with the, the media itself. But honestly, I really think it was just a really poor investment in Iowa uh, that blew too much of his reserves in terms of cash on hand. Right, like you can recover from taking second or third in Iowa as long as you know something's coming on Super Tuesday, but he didn't have enough advertising out there, period. And of course, he never thought he'd make it this far. No, oh, yeah. did at the start. Oh, yeah. yeah, no, I totally agree with that. I think if you're someone who is a Yang supporter, you, you went through your shock and your depression stages, but I think you should be optimistic in seeing how far he went. And how, compared to all the geezers still in the stage, uh, he still has a future in politics, potentially. And when he dropped out, all that media silence that was on him started saying, oh, yeah, we, we loved Andrew's idea. Great ad addition to this race. We are, we're going to now cover him. And so him even now moving into CNN and starting up a podcast for himself. I don't think we're going to see Andrew disappear um, in the near future. Let's talk a little bit about Andrew Yang's current media career. 
Um, I think st- him starting a podcast, I 100% expected something like that. That's like, just makes a lot of sense. The CNN commentator, I literally thought that it was like a satire article when I first <laughs> saw the link. <laughs> and then I was like, no, this is this is an article from CNN. <laughs> Um, I, it just really surprised me. Um, what do you think about that as a move? Like what, it seems kind of like just very unexpected. So uh, do do you have like a particular take? It keeps his face on television. I mean, mean, that's that's definitely true. I have, I have mixed feelings about it. My first impression was some level of disappointment. Uh, I, I fear that this is a very traditional political thing where if you don't have a successful run, you either go become a lobbyist or you go become a mainstream media contributor. And so my guard's up a little bit and it is still up. It depends on how long he does this CNN stint. But if it's him just covering the 2020 election itself uh, with CNN, I don't think I'm going to have an issue. It kind of allows him to inject his voice into the process and also carry some weight with viewership that he normally wouldn't have, um, while not necessarily saying, I'm a long-term player with you guys. I, I'm going to stay easy and obey editorial control. I think CNN really needed someone like him that could also bring in a, a younger viewership as they've been on a rapid decline. Um, and so I hope, it, I hope it is just a very temporary stint and it does help him with that demographic that he previously struggled. I can definitely see it from the perspective of he's dropped out but wants to keep his voice in the race. If he just does this through the race, I would definitely understand that a lot, I think, actually. And, and I think he also has some comfortability specifically with that mainstream media network as if you looked at who actually advocated for Yang during like the primary, the only person in mainstream media was Van Jones. And then secondly, you have to consider when his wife, Evelyn, came out with her story of uh, sexual assault by an OBGYN. The person who covered that story was Dana Bash, also from CNN. So I think there was some um, comfortability and support from the network that convinced him that at least as a short-term role, it could be mutually beneficial. Sure. And it gives him obviously like a cushion while he waits to see what his podcast does. Maybe yeah, they also... were playing footsie like, like it was a little of, hey, we know Yang has been talking about coming over. So we're going to kind of give him a couple of friendly nudges so that he knows that he's landing in friendly territory. Because it's a very good get for CNN, obviously. Yeah, it seems like maybe a bigger win for the network than for him even. Like, I, I would agree with that. Although I will say... I think this could very well help him like mainstream his new platform that he's developing. Like he will be able to use CNN to advertise that he's starting his own independent podcast. I, I think we're, this is one of those, you got to wait and see and see how long Yang actually sticks with the network. Cause I think it's more than fine for him to do it for this 2020 cycle. I will start being a little more nervous if he goes beyond that. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I was just shocked that it happened. Like, it was just, I was just surprised. I was like, what? (laughs) Just because it was so unexpected. But I I get it for now. And I'm curious really to see where he'll be like a year from now. I'm not necessarily so interested in what he's doing right at this second. I think, you know, he's he's got kind of wheels turning. And when those wheels finish turning maybe we'll see something interesting. Yeah, I I wouldn't even be surprised if he did it, like dropped off CNN after the convention and simply helped 
whatever Democratic nominee comes out of that convention, try and win and then gain an administration spot. It could be, you know, I, I think that there's definitely the possibility of Yang in a Bernie administration and maybe some of the others. Yeah, I've, I've definitely heard that in regards to Biden as well. Um, that's someone who is considering him. I also know if you looked at recent Emerson polling, Yang is currently across the board uh, rated on average number two for VP. Kamala Harris was number one. And if you dug into the candidate by candidate specifics, the people who are considering Yang as the number one choice for VP was Bernie Sanders supporters, Tulsi Gabbard supporters, and then Elizabeth Warren had him in number two behind Kamala Harris. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, we'll have to see. It's definitely worth watching. And, you know, I don't have to agree with Yang on everything to find him to be interesting and to want his voice to stay in politics in some way. And especially like I think that there are a lot of roles in a potential Bernie Sanders administration where he could kind of be slotted in and have his strongest skills be put to use. Yeah, no, I strongly agree with that potentially commerce or labor or as that VP position that I will strongly advocate for myself because I know Bernie has said he wants to have a woman, likely a, a minority woman, someone who is younger than him, hint, hint, probably Nina Turner. But I honestly think that if he's being realistic with how he needs to expand his base, he should be looking at someone who does appeal to independents, who does appeal to libertarians, who does appeal to conservatives. And Yang was number one while he was in the race with independents, and he was number two behind Tulsi Gabbard with Republicans. So I think he would bring a lot to the table um, because he was the only person in the entire field who had a net favorable rating across all voters. This one's less prestigious, but I actually think Yang would be genius as small business administrator that would be true this like, is true he really nobody ever really like takes that position and gives it the love it needs to really help the small business economy in america in the way that it really like deeply needs and like yang would absolutely have the mind for it so i always think about that as like i know it's not the most prestigious job but like gosh i think he would be excellent at it yeah that is one of those age-old debates do you go where you're useful or where it actually helps you for the future because i think he has definitely hinted uh post dropping out that he's looking at a 2024 run and so i think he is going to want something that has some level of prestige in it like the main appointed cabinet positions but I wouldn't be surprised if Yang, wanting to just serve wherever he can help out, would still take a small business administration role if it was offered to him. I mean, heck, it might still work out just fine. Uh, you know, Julian Castro, one of his biggest credits to his name was, you know, housing administration. Mm -hmm. Like, that's not generally what people think of, you know, as like hyper prestigious, <laughs> but it's still it's a White House job. Like Counter hey. Counterpoint, though. Julian Castro did not win. <laughs> yeah, well, Hillary Clinton didn't win, and she was Secretary of State. The clout game has changed. I think all you really need is a Twitter account. I mean, AOC is one of the most influential Democrats, and she has a backbench freshman house seat. Um, it's really just about who's listening to your message and can you communicate with them well. So I think that if, if that's Yang's goal is to run again, then I think he can do that from anywhere. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I agree with that point of view. I think it also has to do with like you have the the breadth and the depth. 
You have the people who are going to stay loyal to them and are actually very determined by what they say is the direction versus the the breadth, which is how many people are actually aware of the general message. And I think Yang realized he has this depth. He has this very loyal following around, around his niche. Now he needs a little bit more breadth and awareness so that more people can join in. Let's also, let's talk a little beyond Yang now. Let's talk wait, Yang. Yeah, wait, wait. I don't want to oh, do wait, that wait, quite Brandon, yet. Brandon, go, go, go. Yeah, I have a very good analog for this, and it's mm. Bernie Sanders, who um, got a large following kind of based on default because he wasn't Hillary Clinton. Mm -hmm. But people were like, how are you going to break through with this group or that group? And for a lot of people, like, it just takes time. People, like, have to get to know you before they want you to be president. And in the online world, you can get hyper exposed to a person. Like, you can just read their Twitter feed for a couple of days, and it's like you know them. But for the average person that's not really into politics, like, they need to see your face for a while, and that's probably why he's mm -hmm. doing CNN. They need to see your face and know what you stand for and be comfortable with you. And that's not something that you can always just throw together real quick unless you're Barack Obama. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree with that for sure. I think uh, Twitter has really broken down some of these walls of getting to know people. My problem is, sadly, Twitter is just not that large of the population. It's something like 22%. So he needs to, as you said, the CNNs of the world to spread his message. So although I'm nervous, I, I understand he's playing the game. Yeah, definitely. Um, so let's expand a little bit and talk Yang Gang, because I think mm. that it's not just about what he does. Obviously, there's a whole movement. And uh, even with like the Bernie Sanders, like our revolution movement, uh, we've seen that like Bernie does not just have the reins of this movement. Um, you know, especially since 2016, uh, a lot of other people have stepped up. I mean, AOC, as we were just saying, is a great example of somebody who, you know, she can put out a tweet and that tweet could be on Bernie Sanders platform by the end of the week sometimes, you know, because if enough people jump out there and say, yeah, this is what we need, then, you know, these things get added to the movement. Um, I think that the Yang Gang movement is similarly a lot bigger than Andrew Yang. We had Paperboy Prince on the show a few weeks mm. ago, uh, who is a Yang Gang advocate, um, but was also is running for Congress and has his own platform and even has his own takes on UBI that are a little bit different than Andrew Yang's. Um, so with that in mind, like, what do you think about like where the movement is going in terms of leaders outside of Andrew Yang? Yeah, I think that's a phenomenal question. And I think... One of the things that is very unique to Andrew's movement is how much ideological diversity there really is within it. And I think that the fact that there is this ideological diversity has led to some level of fragmentation post him dropping out, where there's a lot of people trying to first just pick up the pieces of what the 2020 election means. And one of the things that I've been encouraging my audience, uh, because there's not going to be a, a set okay, we're all going to go rally behind this one presidential candidate is to start just looking at your own local races as well as overall the congressional picture itself. Um, I would say that there hasn't been a central leader uh, that we can compare to necessarily an AOC yet emerge. And I think you're not going to necessarily see that until a little later, because frankly, a lot of AOC's poll didn't happen until after she got elected and shocked people. Right, and I think course. you need to kind of see some of these elections play out and people get the uh, primary victories that they need to propel their platforms. 
I think one that comes to mind for me is you're going to have JFK the third who is in New York. He's someone that I've seen potentially have that power to be able to win. I also marched with him uh, during the income movements, uh, basic income March uh, in Harlem. So I think he's someone to keep on the radar. Um, another is James Ellers also in California. I think he's another one we should keep on the radar as well. But I think the overall movement is now trying to figure out how can we properly build the infrastructure that's needed to propel potentially another run for Yang himself. So there's media ventures that people are trying to start up like myself to be able to have a competing infrastructure for what a lot of progressive media has in like the TYT and majority reports of the world, as well as what some of the Trump media has in y'all have the Ben Shapiro's and Dave Rubin's and et cetera of the world. We need a voice to maintain that going forward so that we can compete with these narratives. The second thing is we have this UBI caucus in place so that we have this infrastructure that's connected between the income movement organization, the media, as well as these individual candidates so that they're properly um, connected and amplified as best we can. Um, so I think right now you're going to see a lot of different offshoot movements and a lot of people are waiting on direction currently from Andrew himself in which he said that there's going to be a, a large announcement coming out in around one to five weeks as of this date. Um, so my guess at what that's going to be is likely he's going to do very similar to what Bernie Sanders did after he didn't, didn't win in 2016. He's going to start a 501c4 similar to our revolution, and he's going to support down ballot tickets uh, through that, as well as he might even try and give more freedom dividends through that as well. Uh, so that's really where I see the movement. I don't think there is a very clear direction yet in one path where it's going. I think a lot of people are trying to just say, okay, we recognize that this is a movement that's not just dying here in this year. Let's start building some of that groundwork to support future runs. Do you think UBI is like kind of essentially central to keeping the movement going? Or are there other like critical parts of the movement that might be less obvious to somebody from the outside that yeah. are like kind of core to what Yang Gang is? Very, very sure. Uh, I think everyone's going to know UBI. And frankly, that's one of my criticisms of why I think his campaign didn't go as far as it did, is he became too pigeonholed into being that one idea guy. I think when you actually ask the people who support this movement, what are the things that tie it together? The second biggest uh, thing, in addition to eliminating poverty through UBI, is basic democratic reforms. So I will say term limits is a big thing that unites people, whether it be term limits for Congress or term limits for the Supreme Court. Ranked choice voting is another one. And the third, and I think mm -hmm. this is also pretty obvious for most people, is having some form of technology checks. Uh, we see that technology is having a radical impact, whether it be on a democracy level, whether it be on an economy level, whether it be on a social level. So I think bringing technology as a main pillar into politics is another big thing that unites people. And I'd say the last thing that unites people is probably this idea of human-centered capitalism, where we all recognize that there are fundamental abuses with our current model of capitalism. However, we don't see that the democratic socialist approach necessarily is the ideal because we see that there is going to be some form of innovation that's going to be needed to drive a lot of these problems and that the worker ownership models, although we should embrace some of the tenants, we don't see something like a workfare style, like a federal jobs guarantee being properly 
uh, suited to address problems like automation going forward. So we think that there is definitely power in having a market that has its incentives realigned, having its measurements realigned, but that we're not trying to just say, okay, we need to be nationalizing industry by industry going forward. Yeah. And whether or not I 100% agree with that personally, it is a distinct movement. And it is one whose voice doesn't really have like a major place in politics right now, because the general mode of thinking has been that like the means of production don't really need to change. Whether you're more like me and you would argue for more socialism or you're more like this, I will still say that like Yang gangers aren't simply like, like I, I don't just want to dunk on Elizabeth Warren completely, but mm -hmm. she kind of has a similar sort of phrasing around capitalism, do it, do it, do but it's it. less substantive. Where yeah. Elizabeth Warren is like, yes, we need to make capitalism good again or make it better or something like that. But it's not actually, there's no talk of like a change of any of these things on a deeper level. At least Andrew Yang and the Yang Gang movement sees that need for things to change on a fundamental structural, structural level. And that makes it like, you know, something that kind of needs its own place and its own yeah. place. And, and I would just want to caveat, I, I used to be a member of the DSA myself, and I don't think that they're all wrong. I think they have a lot of solutions that are even better than what Andrew's offering. My point is more so, and I actually, before I get into that, before that, I'm kind of bummed that Andrew didn't just try and take the label social Democrat and instead made his own term of like human-centered capitalism, because I myself align much more as like a social Democrat myself. But I think he has seen that we do need not just regulation and plans, as Elizabeth Warren kind of says it to fix it. We need a fundamental repurposing of what it's working for, which is not to generate shareholder value, but citizen value. Uh, that we are trying to say we see how abusive capitalism is designed to work right now. Not that it's working wrong, but it's working as designed and that it needs to fundamentally be rewritten in terms of its rules, in terms of what we decide to subsidize, how we measure things so that it's actually working for our best interest. And, you know, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter so much what you call it as the policies that are put forth as what the movements are accomplishing. Exactly. You know, I mean, the, the Nazis called themselves socialists, as yeah. people like to point out, you know, like, so, you know, you can take any label and apply it. I understand why a lot of people in America still struggle when grappling with socialism versus capitalism. And, you know, I'm glad that that's changing. And personally, I want to see it keep changing. But I also like I think that there's room for movements that, you know, tread the line a little bit. And the human centered capitalism, you know, I think that there's a place for the social Democrats and the human centered capitalists to write policy together that basically accomplishes the same goals, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> Yeah, honestly, I think a lot of the socialism capitalism dynamic is largely outdated, uh, frankly. I, I think we will all say we, we like Medicare, but do you see most people saying, oh, that's socialism? No, most of the old people freaking love it, even if they're scared of the term socialism. So I think fundamentally, these have just become weaponized words rather than having substance. And that's why one of the things I really strive for on my channel is not like 
talking movement forces or labeling or political strategy, but really talking about the specific policies. Because I think when you talk about the policies, you end up finding that there's much more unity than when you talk about label. Absolutely. I mean, we kind of were talking about this a little before we started recording that you can't be about a person and have an effective, sustainable, long-term healthy movement. You have to be about policies and platforms. And of course, we here on this show, we relate to the position that you're in because we've been through similar things with the Marion Williamson campaign. And, you know, the thing is, is that we didn't support Marion Williamson because, oh, she was just queen and we stand and all that stuff. Sure, we might. Yeah, you're not a Kamala Harris supporter. We might have said some of that stuff as jokes occasionally, but really it was about stuff like the Department of Peace and things like that. And moving forward since she's dropped out of the race, some of those ideas have been adopted by Congress people. And part of that is through the fact that her movement has remained alive and her endorsement has been given out to some of these progressives running. Which I I actually think... Go ahead, go ahead. I I saw Morgan Harper recently obtained her endorsement. I was friends with her on twitter so i totally see her influence carrying forward and i i still want to give shout outs to marianne because i i'll have certain disagreements in style i i don't tend to be as spiritually leaning as marianne herself is but i think she has a fundamental understanding of justice and doing right by people who are friendly and have the right causes as even when she tried to support andrew in iowa she didn't come out with like a firm endorsement Uh, because she wasn't trying to play politics as normal. She was like, I see multiple of these people being good candidates in this race, whether it be Bernie, Warren, or Yang, and that she just wanted to help amplify their voices and help a progressive win. Because one of the things I'll say, I think you can relate to this, is uh, you all are now maybe more aligned to Bernie with the remaining options in the race. I, I tend to probably be falling in that same bucket where I'll end up probably needing to vote for Bernie. Um, And I'm not going to ever shame people in the Yang gang. I think there's way too much ideological diversity to assume that they're all going to go join Bernie, but that this needs to be bigger than Yang. And you're absolutely right. This needs to be, we care about these policies and we'll do whatever we need to do to get closer to those coming into place. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, I think the whole like Yang gangers going to Bernie thing It's definitely, like you say, there's too much ideological diversity to say it's universal, but a lot of people are doing it. It's the same with Marianne people. A lot of people, a lot of us went to Bernie because what are we going to do? We want the movement that's actually going to provide us with some of the things that we want, (laughs) you know? Oh, yeah. Um, I don't want a presidential candidate that's telling me, no, you're going to have none of the things like, you know, say Amy Klobuchar or Joe Biden. Or Bloomberg. Okay. Bloomberg is saying uh, Jonathan, Jonathan, did you have any disagreements with Yang? Were there any parts that frustrated you working with him? Oh, yeah. Uh, I definitely had some disagreement with him. And I think anyone that's followed me will know that the main disagreement I had with him was how he decided to message on healthcare. Now, if you spend hours, <laughs> as a lot of people do who support him, actually finding out what his position was, 
It's not that bad. It really is not. It's like a hybrid single payer public option. But when you look at what he actually put into writing, he basically dismissed the insurance conversation as something that needed to occur. And he only gave one sentence within his plan that suggested he was in favor of a public option. And he also dismissed uh, Bernie Sanders plan as the best option within that plan. And when you look at where he originated from how his healthcare stance was, he had on his page that he supported Medicare for all. Uh, he had back in, I think it was around March of 2019, that that meant single payer itself too. And so I don't have necessarily an issue with what the end result became, as I think there's largely a lot of advantages to it. But I think he did a dreadful job on how he messaged healthcare. And when you looked at polling, that was always something that he majorly underperformed in. And to this day, I meet people who didn't know that he even supported a public option. They thought he was further to the right on healthcare than even Joe Biden and Pete Buttigieg, which he's not. Um, so that's something I, I had some disagreements with. Uh, the other thing that I thought uh, was very foolish on him, his end is talking about how he wasn't in favor of a minimum wage increase. Um, I think he would have been fine um, as president where he wouldn't have vetoed the bill, but that he wasn't supporting it on a national level. And I, I get there's arguments to this, but when you're running in a Democratic primary, uh, that's a losing stance to take. Um, people are going to be in favor of an increased minimum wage, and I don't know why he shot himself in the foot by saying he's not sure on it. Um, and that he would use UBI as the way to increase income instead of doing both. Um, so I think that was another thing. I also had some challenges with him um, initially, and I think he's taken this into account from uh, some of the platform uh, alterations he's made. He was a little bit too um, pro uh, like regulation and kind of censorship in in the media where he used to support something known as an ombudsman as a solution to be able to say uh, you file a complaint against something in the media and you have this panel review it and decide to uh, send a warning and if they don't follow through and uh, like remediate whatever the issue was then a penalty comes uh, and is enforced um, so i think those are some areas where i think he had uh, some disagreements. There's definitely others like sunsetting old laws, but like no one ever really talked about that. But I would say yeah, the yeah. two two it's, big the two big stuff. things <laughs> the two the two big things were really how he decided to message on healthcare and how he decided to message on the minimum wage. I also just think like overall he had a message like he he was speaking very futuristically in a lot of his solutions and pragmatically. But when you look at what voters actually care about today which is where you need to speak to them at. This election was about healthcare. This election was about the environment. This election was about income inequality. And this election was about electability. He did only one of those well, which was income inequality. His healthcare mm -hmm. messaging wasn't perfect. His environmental messaging wasn't frequent enough. And his electability argument stemmed from catchphrases like an Asian man is the opposite of Donald Trump. And that he never really leaned into using polling data beyond saying, you know, I have a couple Trump supporters supporting me. He never went like, oh, I have the highest net favorability in the field or any, anything where it shows I, I can build an organization that can do this. And so I think a lot of those things were messaging problems because I think a lot of his ideas are good, but I think it really showed his political inexperience. 
Yeah, I had the sense all the time, and this was frustrating, when I would like read things that he put out that like really, like his immigration platform, for instance, really frustrated me. That was one of my like biggest moments of being like just unable to really like make, find that bridge with his campaign, you know? Like I, I always had the sense though that if I just sat down and talked with him, that like I would probably agree with him, but that he just had a frustrating way of sort of like yep presenting I know what you mean. platforms that just didn't quite really make sense. And yeah, it's it's very interesting. I'm I'm glad that you brought a lot of this stuff up because it's really like I think you hit the nail on the head with a lot of where his platform stumbled, and not just him, but also like other candidates have stumbled similarly. You know, so I yeah, think that, I think yeah. I think it was a it was a language issue in a lot of cases because I I actually kind of enjoyed how he like laid out his platform, like the the physical structure of what his website looked like, I thought was very digestible for most people. I thought it was mainly the language he chose to use as well as the points he decided to emphasize um, that really set him back a little bit. And I think he also was trying to shape the narrative more than follow the narrative to his own downfall. So let's just like get a little hypothetical here. Mm-hmm. Um, and first we'll imagine, okay, what are some situations that might occur in terms of like Andrew Yang, besides him just running for president 2024? Cause I think that's the most common one everybody's thinking in their mind, but what, what other political situations do you think he might get himself into in the next four to eight years as like uh, a leader of this movement? And then we'll talk what the movement might look like if he doesn't. Mm. So I think there's a couple of scenarios. And I think largely it's going to depend on who this nominee is going to end up as. As I think there is definitely a possibility in several of these candidates uh, becoming the nominee that he will be offered a administration spot, whether it be VP potentially for Biden, whether it be uh, labor or commerce for Bernie. Um, I think those are both possibilities. I think he would even get offered something by Warren, too. Um, potentially similar roles as what Bernie would it. offer. Um, I think that is definitely a scenario, but he- that's a contingent on who gets nominated and B it's contingent on them winning because you don't get an admin spot if your candidate loses. Um, right. So that's one scenario. The second scenario that I see is that he kind of maintains what he is currently doing, which is a, a more media styled approach and he is just solely preparing for 2024 Uh, i think that's definitely possible as well um i think the third thing that i could see him doing is potentially running for mayor of new york city i think that would be interesting and for selfish reasons i would love it being that i'm kind of in that area uh but for him himself i don't think it makes a ton of sense uh you're not going to be able to have the same levels of authority over the problems that are facing New York City as the mayor as you'd like. A lot of that is happening by the governor, um, and you're going to have to deal with a lot of Albany corruption. And frankly, it might it's it's kind of a beast of an environment that might damage him more than help him. Um, And then the, the final thing that I could see him potentially doing is running for Senate against Schumer. Um, That's something that I could see as well. Um, I think the most likely situation uh, that he'll find himself in 
is probably a um, admin spot and then falling back onto that media um, on a loss. I, I do think right now I, I have confidence. Sorry, go ahead. No, that that was it. In in my mind, it's either getting that spot off, he's going to run for mayor, or he's going to run for the Senate against Schumer. Listen, I'd like to do a quick segue. Um, tell me about your show. How did you start, and how can a person start? Um, you know, we have a show, but if somebody's interested in doing what you do, how do they get there? Oh, no problem. I love to answer this question. So I started my channel as a concept. It was July of 2018. I didn't actually make anything until January of 2019. But my inspiration at that time was I wanted to find a way to be able to, A, insert my own voice into more than just being a Twitter commentator, uh, into something where I could actually speak aloud and be heard. B, I thought when I was looking at a lot of the media uh, landscape, there was a lot of solely candidate advocacy. There was a lot of trying to dunk on people uh, and say why they were very wrong of other YouTube commentators. And there was a lot of general negativity. And so I wanted to create something that was focused on being positive, being uniting, and being much more policy focused rather than just current events focused. Um, and so I started the channel in 2019 of January, and I started from kind of just getting a camcorder, and I was sitting in a chair. The early stuff of what I made was garbage. I, I had no media <laughs> production experience. We can relate. Uh, and uh, yeah, it was kind of a trial by fire. Um, and then I started off by doing individual commentary, largely doing what I most people did commenting on like current events, um, honestly, but I tried to be more positive and more fact-based. Um, but then I realized I wanted to be able to speak with other people and really be able to give more than just myself a voice. Um, because I feel, I don't know about anyone else here, but when I'm listening to podcasts, it's very rarely one person's commentary I'm listening to. It's usually, it's a conversation and it's like a, a testing of ideas and I think that's really important because not one person will ever have all the perspective that you need for a proper uh, discussion on any subject. I think you need a variety of perspectives. And so I started off doing panel conversations of three because I thought, A, it was like a manageable size of people. Uh, B, it let me have a diversity of opinions that I could bring in. Um, and see, it, it, it looked nice having panels, like four-person panels. Um, and it kind of evolved into doing some debate formats in it. Um, but then come now 2020, I decided I wanted to move away from the panel conversations to more one-on-one -on -one because I felt largely, I lost my own voice in that. I just became a question asker of the panel and they would just speak. I like to be able to share my own perspective as well. And secondly, I felt that having one person be able to talk to their priorities rather than me just formulating some topic we're going to talk about today has much more value because you can actually say, okay, I didn't just have this one-off conversation on this subject and I'll forget about it. You can now have like a record where someone has said, these are my top 
priorities. I'm putting it on the record that this is what I care about. And that you can hear people be passionate about subjects that they care much more about. And so that's why I really wanted to do these one-on-one conversations much more and in the structure that I'm currently doing it. That's really cool. Um, Yeah, I mean, we also just kind of like had similar motivations in a lot of ways. It's funny, you talking especially about like uh, seeing too much negativity in a lot of the media that you wanted to consume. Um, You know, we definitely felt that way about a lot of like progressive leftist media that it was like mostly focused on dunks and cringe. And of course, we do some of that, but... Mostly our goal is to talk about policy and positive things, you know? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, the main reason why I did that, it wasn't even for my own viewing enjoyment, because I I still have people that I watch that do that occasionally. I can't help it. But when I talk to people who were my friends in real life, that why they weren't as politically engaged, the number one reason they told me is it just always makes them feel negative. Um, And I wanted to be able to give something to politically apathetic to say, Hey, I learned something today. I don't feel shitty about life in general. There are bright people working on solutions and advocating. And I, I can be part of something larger, like kind of a more of a movement. Uh, and I will definitely say, uh, I've been learning as I go along. It's now been over a year since I started and I still don't know for certain, like if what I'm doing now is going to be what I'm doing at the very end of the year in terms of structure. I think it's just largely evolving and growing based on what you feel comfortable doing, as well as what your audience is demanding. I certainly am very appreciative of my audience giving me feedback, which has helped me make some of these decisions to evolve my content as I have. Well, John Munitz, thank you so much for coming on the show today. This has been a real pleasure talking to you about you and your show a little bit and about Andrew Yang and about politics in general. And uh, yeah, do you have anything you want to shout out or plug real quick? Obviously, like get your YouTube channel and stuff out there. Yeah, I well, first of all, thank you so much, Kennedy, as well as Brandon for having me on today. It was a real pleasure to chat with you both. Um, If people want to go learn a little bit more about my platform, as we mentioned, it's called The Hill of Roses. It's on YouTube, it's on Apple Podcasts, it's on SoundCloud. It's being produced now once a week. We come out with episodes every Tuesday morning. I record with my guests every Saturday afternoon. So if you also want to be a guest, there's a sign-up form that you can check that's under any of the videos so that you can come talk to me and have a one-on-one interview as well. Um, That being said, uh, I know we just had an episode today with Nicholas Party. Uh, He talked about universal basic income, ranked choice voting, and drug decriminalization. So that video is going to be coming out on Tuesday if you want to go give it a check. Yeah, that'll probably be out a little before I need to become an expert at something so that I can come on your show and be a voice of authority. Oh, see, that's (laughs) the thing. We don't bring in just experts. I think it's personally valuable to bring in regular people because you know what regular people are the people who need to participate in politics oh, so like idiots and so that's even really cool. if you are that. that's that too because you know what idiots are hilarious so the idiots we appreciate all the idiots you. coming always on. think about that <laughs> it's so true because you know what uh i personally have loved the conversations where i get to teach people something and they get to teach me something too because sometimes i'm not a genius on all subjects frankly it's not most subjects that i am (laughs) so i really appreciate having everyone on that i can talk to so jonathan one day we'll come together you teach me and i'll teach you that sounds good to me i'm pretty sure that's part of a pokemon theme song (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) oh john munitz everyone 
Again, thank you so much. Uh, your links will be in the show description, of course. So everybody, go check out John's channel. Uh, it's good stuff. Definitely, like I really enjoyed being on his show, and I watched some of his other content, and I liked it. And that's part of how he ended up being here. So if you like us and you like this episode, go check it out. And also, if you like us and you don't follow us on Twitter, we are at NSF Wonks, and we are at patreon.com slash not safe. If you want to take things to the next level, we appreciate it so much because this show costs money to run. And the more money that we have, the more things that we can do. So go over there and get involved if you can. We really appreciate it. And with that, we have been Not Safe for Wonks. I'm Kennedy Cooper. And I'm Brandon Buchanan. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.